o'clock this morning. I, I always wake up early, but usually on Sunday morning, I wake up especially early. And this morning at four o'clock, I was listening to a really good preacher named Wade Stevens. <laughs> and he was preaching in a really good church down at the point. And he brought a really good message from Isaiah chapter 6. So I'm so excited for him, and I'm excited for you. Uh, we have blessed the Lord for this privilege of being with you, and y'all have been especially kind to us uh, today. And then the last Sunday in the month, we will finish our uh, privilege of serving as your interim. And we just want to thank you and the search committee for that honor of doing that. If you'll open your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 21, I want to preach today on the subject, the limitless love of a mother. In a Peanuts comic strip, Peppermint Patty and Violet are reflecting on being a grandmother, and they both agreed that they would love to be a grandmother. They concluded it, it's nice to be a grandmother because all they do is sit and rock. <laughs> but they got to thinking, you know, the problem with being a grandmother is that first of all, you have to be a wife, and then you have to have a, a child, and then later on, the grandchildren come. And Violet responded to Peppermint, I, I know it, it's all those preliminaries that get me. <laughs> well, there's not a mother in this room today, but what you know what they meant. There's a lot of preliminaries, a lot of challenges and hard work, a lot of prayer and patience that go along. But, you know, grandchildren come along as our reward for all of that. Amen? Yeah. Uh, but today we want to look at a mother that is seldom considered on Mother's Day. In fact, I won't do it, but I would like to know how many of you have really never, wouldn't know who she was when I mentioned her name. Some of you will, but her, her story is found in 2 Samuel chapter 21. And I'm, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1, and I'm going to read through verse 14. We've heard of Mary, the mother of Jesus. We've heard of Elizabeth and Rachel and Rebecca and Hannah and Ruth and Naomi. We've all heard numerous sermons on those mothers and especially at Mother's Day. But I wonder if you've ever heard a sermon on a mother named Rispah. Her story is found in 2 Samuel chapter 21. And I'll ask you to stand with me for the reading of this biographical section, 2 Samuel chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the presence of the Lord, and the Lord said, It is for Saul and his bloody house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. 
Now the Gibeonites were not of the sons of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. And the sons of Israel made a covenant with them, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the sons of Israel and Judah. Thus David said to the Gibeonites, What should I do for you, and how can I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? Then the Gibeonites said to him, We have no concern of silver or gold with Saul or his house, nor is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he, that is King David, said, I will do for you whatever you say. So they said to the king, The man who consumed us, that is Saul, and who planned to exterminate us from remaining within any border of Israel, let seven men from his sons be given to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the oath of the Lord which was between them between David and Saul's son Jonathan. So the king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, Armoni, and Mephibosheth, whom she had borne to Saul, and the five sons of Mirab, the daughter of Saul, whom she had borne to Adriel, the son of Brazilii, the Meholathite. Then he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them in the mountain before the Lord, so that the seven of them fell together, and they were put to death in the first days of the harvest, that is, April, at the beginning of the barley harvest. And Rispah, the daughter of Ai, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock. And from the beginning of harvest, April, until it rained on them from the sky, September, and she allowed neither the birds of the sky to rest on them by day, nor the beast of the field by night. When it was told David what Rispah, the daughter of Ai, the concubine of Saul, had done, then David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan his son from the men of Jabez-Gilead, who had stolen them from the open square of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day of the Philistines struck down Saul, in Gilboa. He brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan his sons from there, and they gathered the bones of those who had been hanged. They buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan his son in the country of Benjamin in Zelah, in the grave of Kish his father. Thus they did all the king commanded. And after that God was moved by the prayer of the land. This is the Word of God. Would you be seated, please? The limitless love of a mother is presented to us in this text in one of the most powerful, sad stories we find in Holy Scripture. Rispa is virtually unknown. She is a sad study within herself. And so we want to approach this text in a threefold way. 
First of all, before you can understand the text, you must understand the background of the story. Once having understood the background of the story, we will delve into the underground of the story. We'll look beneath the surface of the narrative and find the meaning that God would have for us to understand. And then I want to close by looking at the holy ground of the text. For it presents to us one of the most beautiful pictures of holy ground around Calvary that I've ever read. So let's begin with the background of the story. Actually, this story begins 400 years earlier than this. It begins with the, with the entering of Joshua into the land of Canaan. After having wandered for 40 years, they came to the border and they were just entering the land of Canaan. And God had said to them, all those inhabitants of Canaan are worshiping many gods and those gods will destroy you and will try to divert your faith in the one true God. And so God gave them a command that they were to do away with all of the Canaanites that inhabited the land of Canaan that God had given to them. They had immediate victory. The destruction of Jericho threw a fear into the hearts of all the Canaanites. That was succeeded by the destruction of Ai after a little glip in the, in the uh, radar. But then those two events threw fear into all the Canaanites. And they wondered, will we be next? Who will be next? But the Gibeonites were smart. They decided, if you can't beat them, join them. And so they took a delegation in Joshua chapter 9, if you'd like to read this for yourself. They took a delegation and put on old clothes. They had old moldy bread, remember that? And they made their way up to Joshua. And they pretended to be from a distant land. And they wanted to uh, flatter Joshua by saying they had heard about Israel. And they had heard about all the accomplishments they had made. So they flattered uh, Joshua and pride always gets in the way when we're trying to walk with God. And so Joshua puffed up with pride. And, and then uh, after that they, they told Joshua, we want to make a treaty with you, a non-aggression treaty with you. And so after Joshua had been puffed up with pride and after he had been filled with presumption, if you're filling in your blanks those are the three, uh, he was puffed up with pride, he was puffed up with presumption, and he was and he was unwise because of prayerlessness. You see, when you read that text in Joshua chapter 9, you don't read one thing about Joshua saying, let us pray about this. Let me see if this is something God would be pleased with or not. No, there was presumption, there was pride, and there was prayerlessness. And so they entered into this, uh, this non-aggression treaty with the Gibeonites. Now, fast forward 400 years. And after the end of the judges and we enter the time of the kings, the first king is King Saul. This is the first time they've had a monarch who had supreme power over the whole nation. And so Saul makes a unilateral decision that he is going to go back and undo the covenant that Joshua made with the Gibeonites. And Saul set out to exterminate the Gibeonites whom the, whom the treaty had been made with 400 years before. Now, Saul dies. David comes to power. 
When David comes to power, there is a three-year famine. For three years, no rain. The crops won't grow. The economy is going south. And so David begins to pray and say, God, what's wrong? What's wrong? Why is there no rain? Because in Hebrew history, the Hebrews looked at lack of rain as drought and sometimes as disease as being a sign of God's judgment. And so David prays, God, show me what's wrong. And so God answers him. God says, uh, uh, it's because of the way Saul treated the Gibeonites. So David calls a delegation of the Gibeonites, we just read about it, to come and tell him as king of Israel what Israel needs to do to make redemption. What Israel needs to do to get rid of this drought and to enter into good relationships with the Gibeonites again. And so the Gibeonites came, I think, with a smile on their face and they said, well, David, we don't, we don't want any of your silver or gold. <laughs> David, we don't want you to kill anyone. And so by that time, David is making the same mistake Joshua made. So he says to them, he gives them a, a blank check. All right, guys, if you don't want me to kill anybody, you don't want any silver or gold, I'll tell you what, whatever you want, we'll give it to you. And that's when the smile turned into a snarl. And they said, I'll tell you what we want. We want sons Saul, uh, the sons of Saul. We want seven of them because seven is a perfect number and that will be a perfect satisfaction for all that he did against us. Now David, it's too late to back out. And so David said, I'll do it. He gave them two sons of the concubine of Saul named Rizpah and five of their first cousins. And so the Gibeonites took them away. I can just picture this. I can picture a delegation of the Gibeonites riding up into the yard of Rizpah's home. Now Rizpah is not, she, she's been through a lot of heartache. She was married, well she was a concubine, same as being married to the king. She lived a life of luxury and then her husband committed suicide. Her heart was broken. And on top of that, the man who followed, the general of the army that, that, uh, that came next, sexually abused Rizpah, raped her. Now, here is a woman. She's been sexually abused. She's faced a tragic death of her husband. And the only means of support in her whole life is two sons. These Gibeonites drive up, take her two sons, and drag them away. Rispa, a hearty soul, follows them. And she watches as they take them to Saul's hometown, Gibeah. And there they hang them on a tree. Seven, two sons, five cousins, hanging on a tree. And throughout the day, they parade and prance in front of those corpses. Finally, they take all the vengeance they can get out of that one day. And all of them gradually leave, gradually leave, one by one, leaving only the seven corpses. Because it was the law that they couldn't be taken down and they couldn't be buried. 
a sign of shame and ignominy. And so they walk away, seven corpses on seven trees. Now, as the last person leaves, out of the shadows of the setting sun comes a little widow. Her name is Rispah. She comes with sackcloth. She puts the sackcloth on a rock and she sits down where she will live for the next five months. From the beginning of the barley harvest to the coming of the rains. And as the sun sets and the night comes, she sees the flashing of the eyes of the animals who smell death, who smell the blood, and who overcome their natural timidity to come up to those corpses so that they might reach up and grab them and pull them down and eat them. And when, and, and when Rispa hears the sound, the guttural sound of those animals, she picks up that sackcloth and puts away all of her fear, and she shouts at those animals and says, Get away from here. You will not have my sons. And the day comes, and she sees the shadows of the buzzards flying. And she again picks up that cloth and flicks it to heaven. You'll not have my son. Now, that's the background. That's where she is. But let's look at, the, let's look at a, another aspect of below that sheer narrative. And let's look at what is deeper, the underground. What is this text saying to us? And the way that we come to understand what this text says to us is by asking a simple question of everybody on that hillside in Gibeah. Let's begin by asking the crowd, those prancing, those Gibeonites that are walking back and forth, hissing and spitting. And we ask them, why are you on Mount Gibeah today? And the answer comes back, revenge. We've been waiting for this day ever since Saul invaded our cities and destroyed our people. We're here for one reason, to get revenge. Revenge is a horrible thing, isn't it? Bitterness. I honestly feel sorry for those people because what they didn't know is they were killing themselves. You see, bitterness is like acid. It destroys its container. And for all of these years, they've been carrying around this bitterness, and now they have vomited all of that bitterness onto these four, uh, these seven sons, two of them belonging to Rizpah. Why are you here? Revenge. But then I ask Rizpah, why are you here? You know the answer to that, don't you? Every mother in this room knows the answer to that. Rispa, why are you here? Because of a mother's love. 
It's true. Mother is the first one to kiss us when we're born. And she's the last one to kiss us when they're closing the casket. A seminary student in Fort Worth, Texas was doing a funeral out in the Dallas area. And when the funeral was finished, he turned to go to his car and he saw a widow, a a, a lady who by herself, he presumed a widow, standing at a grave just weeping her heart out. And so he went over to her just to see if he could minister to her. He said, ma'am, I'm a I'm a preacher. I I can tell you're distraught. Is there anything I can do for you? And she turned to him and said, doesn't anybody love my son? Doesn't anybody love my son but me? And the seminary student looked at the headstone, and it was marked Lee Harvey Oswald. Even if our son assassinates a president, she still loved him. When I see on the news where a a young girl has been arrested for prostitution, my heart aches because I know that's the daughter of a broken-hearted mother. When I see a young teenager or young adult who's pushed in the back seat of a police car because they've been driving drunk or they've gotten into an accident or, or something like that, And my heart aches because I know that teenager has a mom and has a dad. And everybody else may think they're a bum, but that mother and daddy loves that kid. Just like some of you in this room. You love your children. And they're far from the Lord. Rispa, why are you here? I'm here because I love my son. Armona, Mephibosheth, why are you here? Sons of Saul, why are you here? They come back with, because somebody else sinned. Because my father sinned. We haven't done anything. We haven't done anything. We've not killed anybody. We don't have anything against the Gibeonites. Our father is the one that violated the covenant. But we're suffering because somebody else sinned. Have you ever been watching a football game and your your team is winning? I won't call any team names here. You can figure it out for yourself. And they're playing a great game and the game is tight. And it looks like they're going to pull that thing out. And in the last minute... Somebody is off sides. And you just, oh, man. Why am I saying, oh, man? I didn't do it. I didn't jump off sides. Why is the coach saying, oh, man? Why is the 50,000 in the stand saying, oh, man? Because when he got off sides, that hurt everybody in the stands. You see, you don't sin solo. Sin sends ripples out. How many times are children paying for the price 
for their parents' sin. How often are children going without because of a selfish parent who puts himself or herself first? Why is it that children are, are dying of loneliness because they're not the priority in the family? They're suffering because of somebody else's sin. Well, it's not far from Gibeah, north of Jerusalem, to another mountain just south, Mount Calvary. Mount Calvary. There's not seven crosses, but there's three. And when we move to Gibeah, we move from the underground to the holy ground. So let's just close by reflecting on some holy ground. Here we are at Calvary, not seven, but three crosses. But just like Gibeah, there's a crowd prancing in front of those three crosses. Some of them, a few of them, three or four of them are crying. They're standing right up near the cross. It's, it's amazing that just a few days ago, the whole city was lining the street, hailing this man on the middle cross. But now there's only four or three or four that are up close enough to shed tears and, and talk with him. Everybody else, especially those in the religious garb, the Pharisees and Sadducees and the high priests, they're prancing around, looking up, applauding. He saved others. Himself he cannot save. And, and I want to ask that crowd, why are you here? And the answer echoes the answer we got from the crowd at Gibeah. We're here because we hate that man on the middle cross. And we have been plotting his death for three years. And we finally got an opportunity to do it. We're here because of revenge. He took our popularity away. This fisherman. They call him rabbi. He doesn't even have his doctor's degree. We're here because of revenge. He stole our popularity. He walked around doing miracles, making us look shallow and empty. Yeah, I guess so. They were. We're here because of revenge. I asked the man on the middle cross, Jesus Christ, why are you here? The answer comes back, because someone else sinned. He was tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. Pilate, Pilate the judge that condemned him to death, said, I find no fault in him. Jesus would say, I'm here because Tommy Vincent sinned. I'm here. Put your name there. That's why Jesus was there. 
he who knew no sin became sin for us. Jesus would say, I'm here because you sinned. I love those people. I love them. And the wrath of God that they deserve, that Tommy Vincent deserves, I choose to take that wrath upon myself and to drink that bitter cup so that they can be saved. Well, let's not forget Mary the mother of Jesus. Mary is so close that Jesus can look down at her and say, woman, which is not a word of denigration, but he says, woman, behold your son, and son, behold your mother. There's Mary. Mary, why are you here? I'm here because of a mother's love. I remember the word that was said to me when we took Jesus as an infant into the temple. And Zechariah looked at me and said, Mary, a sword will pierce your soul also. And now I know what he meant. I'm here because of a mother's love. But in closing this message, I want to tell you this. There's another person at Calvary. Maybe you didn't see him. Maybe you didn't notice him. But he was there. And I ask, Jehovah God, Father in heaven, why are you here? And we'd have to, we'd have to give a caveat there because there was a short period of time when he wasn't there. Remember that? There, there was a short period of time when God was not at Calvary because Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that, in that finite period of time when Jesus took an infinite amount of sin of the world, the Father turned his back. But then Jesus said, it is finished. And in my mind, I see the Father's face turning back to Calvary. And I say, Father, why are you at Calvary? And he answers back with a verse of Scripture. For I so loved the world that I gave my only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's why God was there. Amen. Amen. That's why God was there. Because he loved you enough to empty heaven of his most priceless jewel, his son. Came, lived 33 years without sin, died on a cross, not for anything he had done, but for your sins and mine. Was crucified, buried, rose again the third day, and when he rose from the dead, it affirmed to the Father that he had paid the complete price for our sins so that now you and me can repent of those sins, ask Jesus to save us, and he'll do it. That is good news. Amen? Regardless of what you've done, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow.
Man, that's the gospel. Amen. That is the gospel.